the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. We always hear everyone talking about unity, but just exactly what does unity look like within the church? What are we to base our unity on? And how do we go about doing that practically? We'll explore those questions next. From Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose, online at reformedheritage.org, welcome to today's broadcast of Abounding Grace with our teacher and pastor, Gary Wagner. Today, Gary returns us to Romans 12, verses 1 through 8, in a message called God's Grace for Church Unity. Oh, there's that unity word. Just exactly what does that mean? How are we to explore, experience, and express unity in a church that seems bent on keeping itself divided? Well, that's what we're looking at today. Please join us. Here's Pastor Gary with today's broadcast of Way of Grace. God's grace for church unity. We still hear every now and then calls for church unity. We do need more of it. We should seek it. It would be a good thing if we had it. And I pray and wish that this was our daily cry that God would unify the church in faith and love because the fragmentation of the church is dishonoring to God. It tears apart the body of Christ and it makes the conversion of the world impossible. Most of the suggestions, sadly, that are offered to unify the church only result in further fracturing of the church. Some say that we should be less concerned with doctrine and more concerned with reaching the lost. But without God's truth, what are we going to reach them with? Commonly held ideas that we share with the world, familiar music and casual worship to preach a casual God, therapy for the discontented and covetous, these things only make the church look and sound more like the world. They don't unify her except with the world. Others say we should focus on doing good and serving the poor and the needy, which is good. But again, we've got to be sure our cup of cold water is in the name of Jesus. Or it is just simply humanitarianism. And the church is not a humanitarian institution, not at least primarily. Some say we should rally around social causes pro-life movement, homeschooling, family issues, poor relief. But if we believe that the church is a divine institution, that Christ is its only head, then we have no right to remake the church in the image of what we think the pressing issues of the day happen to be. There is only one deep, lasting, biblical basis for the church to be unified. And that happens to be indicated in the very text we read today. 
It is, as we see in verses 1 and 2, for the Lord to transform us as our minds are renewed by his spirit, which we've already looked at. So for what purpose, though, end of verse 2, that we may prove that what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And this will is found only in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. And each one of us here is committed to obeying God's word. Then there will be true basis for unity within the body of Christ. And what is that basis? Is it sentiment? No. Ecumenicalism? No. It is plain and simple God's truth. Rather than, as we will look at momentarily in verse 3, thinking highly of our own opinions, many of which are the product of our upbringing or the desire to control our circumstances or just fear, Instead of being governed by these things, we will seek to be governed by God's will. And each one of us will be praying in his own prayer closet, Lord, make me meek, make me teachable. For there is only one God and only one lesson he teaches us. And that is his holy word is life. So as we are gathered around that word and as we look to be taught by him, we shall necessarily be more one in mind and affection and in our work in this world. We will also be broken over our sins. We will be willing to listen to what the church has said and testified down through the ages to the truth of God rather than thinking, well, my faith is original with me. I've got to define my own way of living for God in this world today. Well, 3,000 years ago, The church received this testimony, and it remains true to this very moment. Psalm 119, 165. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. That's in the New Testament, too, in John, the 17th chapter. And you will see in our Lord's great prayer how he prayed very clearly for the church to be sanctified in the truth. And then he prayed for it to be unified. Verse 17 of John 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so I also send them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone. But for them which shall believe on me through their word, that they may be one, unified. So how are we to be made one? We must have God's word written upon our hearts. We must be sanctified, made holy in obedience to God and walking in his word. And then we will have unity and not until. In the last century, there's been a whole lot of talk about Unity. There have been actually mass movements. We have lived through the modernist ecumenical movement and various and sundry evangelical calls at, at, at times for this. But there has been less unity over the last century than in the centuries prior. Why is this? Dwindling love and confidence in God's word. 
dwindling commitment to obey it, ignorance of it growing. And what has replaced it? Sham science, rampant consumerism, rabid individualism. These things have undermined faith in God's word until basically we're all set out adrift like little coracles on the sea of life trying to find our way instead of recognizing our unity is in this book alone. Our unity is in this book because this book is the inspired revelation of the will of our God preserved by His Spirit for the church down through the ages and sealed with the blood of the eternal word who brought in the everlasting covenant, who gave us his spirit so that we would have this word and by that same spirit writes this word upon our hearts so that we are humble, all broken and all desiring to be led by God alone. Beloved, there will be no progress for our race. In America, this has been our idol for two and a half to three centuries. Progress. Going back before that into Europe, progress, 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 technological, scientific exploration, economic progress. But there can be no progress, no lasting helpful progress for the race of fallen man, and therefore no unity within the church at all until we are transformed by the power of God. Romans 12, verse 2. Jesus' words to Nicodemus come echoing down through the ages. Do you remember what they were? Jesus, you are such a great teacher. You must be from God because no one can do these miracles that you do unless God be with him. And Jesus looked at him right in the eye and said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born from high. You must have had God do in you what you cannot do in yourself. And when God does this work in us, when he gives us this new heart, he renews our minds so we can see the truth about ourselves and the world in which we live. His word cleanses us from our filth and it teaches us what to think and how to feel and it makes us willing to obey our Savior. So, from every possible place, I'm trying to impress upon you at the outset, not only the connectedness of this text, moving from God's perfect and well-pleasing and goodwill to love and unity and gifts, but also to remind us that nothing less and nothing more than the Word of God can affect the greater unity of the church. God has said to us, do you want the church to be a place of unity, a place of peace and joy and strength? Is that what you want, or do you want to be fighting and bickering with fragmentation? I'm assuming, of course, we all want the former. So God says to us, well, this is what you've got to do then. Each one of you who professes my name must come to my table like a hungry child and eat what I have put before you in my word. You can't turn your nose up at it if it presses upon you. You can't turn your nose off it, up of it if it puts you at odds with the world in which you live. You can't say, well, I only want this, I don't want that. I won't want donuts, but I don't want the Brussels sprouts. No, God says, you've got to eat my entire book. 
That's what he told the prophets, remember? That's what Jesus told John. Because this is a New Testament, an Old Testament idea. Eat the book. Some people say, particularly just about everyone in seminaries today, which I will tell you by and large are a total waste of time and money. But many in the seminaries say, no, no, no. God would never reveal his will in a book. Never. Writing is too lowly, too base, too unreliable a medium for God to convey his word to us. Come on. Find that will of God in your own feelings. Be your own kite and find what the wind is going to blow, where the wind is going to blow you. Listen, we live in God's world, and he doesn't care what seminary professors say. God doesn't care what government officials say. God doesn't care what liberal pundits say, nor does he care what you and I say. He cares what he says, and he says, thus saith the Lord. He says to his prophets and to his apostles, write, I want my book, my will to be clearly known to my people. Isn't it sad how many people are going to hell in this generation? Sadly to say, maybe some of you here who have God's book right in front of you, telling you the way to everlasting life through Jesus Christ, and yet you believe the snickers of the liberals, the Harvards, the Princetons, the Yales. Jesus says to you then, let the dead bury the dead. You follow me. You follow my word. In the verses Kurt read earlier, we see subjects like love, unity, gifts, but... Let's not think of church unity and love within the body purely in terms of those big sweeping mass movements that I mentioned earlier that have captivated and distracted the church for over a century. Now, I, I don't want to belittle the idea of bigness. The church, after all, is a colossal body. God in Revelation says or pictures her as a city with walls that can't even be measured. But we need to remember that those walls are made up of living stones that God is working on to transform and renew. And our desire must be to see the church respected. We, need, we read the Psalms and we're told God is known among His people. And the nations will tremble when they see the Lord is in Zion. And we want this. But we've got to be really careful that in our desire for this, we don't listen to Satan's temptation to our Lord. Do you remember the second temptation? Jesus, if you really are the Son of God, you've got to show everyone on terms that the world will accept. So throw yourself down from this turret on this temple because, after all, don't you remember the psalm? That he will give his angels charge concerning you and they will bear you up lest you dash your foot against the rock. Show yourself. Prove that you are the Son of God. And in many respects, the church has signed up and capitulated to that very temptation in our day. Mass movements have come and see the big show in town. We've got all the answers, all, of course, in the name of Jesus. But remember, 
The greatest movement of God in history is not going on in Washington, D.C. It's not going on in Moscow. It's not going on in Hollywood. It's not going on in Paris today. It's going on in this building that God is making of individual believers whom he has sanctified and is transforming and building and knitting their hearts together to form the true body of Christ. That is what God is doing. Because he will gather all things into one under Christ the head as we are his body. As Paul introduces this section here in verse 3, notice he emphasizes God's grace. He could have said here through my apostolic authority with a big megaphone, I'm trying to tell you all to be one. But he doesn't do that. He emphasizes instead God's grace. He speaks as one who has received mercy and is deeply aware of it. Chapter 2, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, by the mercy of God, God's pity to sinners, for grace is where we must begin. And grace is the summary of this entire letter to this point. So what is grace? Everyone in here needs to understand that it is the good news. This is what was brought and the only thing that has ever been brought to this point of all the angelic host or most of them coming out of heaven into the firmament to sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill to men. That is grace. It was God's grace revealed in the God man, Jesus Christ. What is grace? Grace is not saying, look at our church. Grace is not saying we have all the answers. We've got a little think think tank here going on right now. And we're solving all the world's problems. Grace is not come and be moved and entertained by our novelties. Grace is when we are humbled by God's love to us in Jesus Christ. That he would crucify this only begotten son, his beloved That he would crucify that son for our filth and lay upon him the judgment we so deserve. Grace is when we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Grace is when we were enemies of God, he sent his son to reconcile us to himself. Because grace is God's goodness, his undeserved kindness to sinners. Now I'm here to tell you that nothing good Nothing lasting, nothing God-honor ever really happens in the church that doesn't draw its lifeblood from the grace revealed in Jesus. Whether it be the humility of mind that Paul talks about here, whether it be elevating one another, serving one another with gifts, speaking of the gospel to those around us, what was all that prompted by? The love of Christ which constrains us, his love, the grace of God manifested in Jesus Christ. When each one of us cries, Lord, it's not about me. You must increase, but I must decrease. Then we will see the church more unified because we will have understood what the gospel does. The gospel takes the spotlight off, off, off us. The gospel takes the spotlight off me and you. The gospel is not about my little life and my pains and my trials. 
Yes, those things are, are, are real. We've talked about those things repeatedly, particularly when we went through the book of Job. But that is not the main thing. The main thing is seeing what God has done for us through his son. See how he laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He laid upon him the chastisement of our peace. See how he took out the sword of justice that would have surely fallen upon you and me. Except that the Son of God was struck down that his sheep might be saved. That is God's grace. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now we're not going to think like this unless each one of us has this gospel humility. The gospel always produces this. Notice verse 3. The gospel teaches us, grace teaches us, not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. The uber-thinking, as it is in the Greek, is infatuation with our own opinions, our, our own agendas, our own learning and experience, and even the gifts that God gives us. Remember what Paul had to tell the Corinthians because they were bickering? Turn over to 1 Corinthians 4.7. Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. This was a problem even in the early days of the church. There were spiritual gifts and graces and people were boasting about them. But you know, I wonder sometimes, at least they were concerned about these types of things. Now this may be way off, but there is a sense today which the church is so distracted we're not even spiritual enough to have the problems that Corinth had. We don't even take the gospel serious enough to say, Hey God, give me a revelation this week. Now granted, Paul here gets onto them big time for boasting like that. But we are so sunk in our own concerns that it never occurs to us, I want God to teach me this week. I want to share what God has taught me this week. So when we jump all over the, over the Corinthians, we need to be careful. There were women in Corinth who were saying, we don't need to have physical relations with our husbands, and saying we should be able to pray in public worship service also, God, and be leaders in the church. And Paul put them in their place and reminded them of God's order for worship and for creation. Granted, this was guided spiritually. But do we even regard God's gifts and his teachings with the degree of this, of this seriousness today? Paul had to tell them in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, For who maketh thee to differ from one another? And what hast thou that that's didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, then why dost the glory as of thou had not received? What is he telling them here? Everything you have is a gift of God. So you don't need to boast in what you have. You need to boast in the God who gave it to you. And that is what thinking soberly means back there in Romans 12 verse 3. Thinking soberly doesn't mean don't ever take a drink because that is easy. No. Soberly here is when in the line, in line with the context, we recognize everything we have, every gift, every grace, salvation 
is a gift of God. Therefore, I have absolutely nothing to boast in but in God's goodness to me through His Son. I don't take any credit for it, and I don't want to push myself into the spotlight. Notice how God deals with this in 1 Corinthians 15.10. You know, we need to recognize the things that God does for us in our lives and not think, it is me. It's like, well, I've always been this good, and I've always been this intelligent. I've always known all these things that I know now. No, look at what Paul does. 1 Corinthians 15.10, beginning in verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God, and by the grace of God I am what I am. And His grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. Notice what Paul is doing here. He says, look at what God has done in my life. I was the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle. And I persecuted the church of God. But he has done all of this in my life. Well, that's all the time we have today. This has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. If you'd like to review today's broadcast, we would invite you to contact us for a copy of the program. They're available for just $5. Mention today's date and we'll send a CD your way. Here's where to write to us. PMB number 402, 1484 Pollard Road. That's in Los Gatos, California. The zip code is 95032. Again, that's PMB number 402, 1484 Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California, 95032 is that address. Our phone number, if you'd rather call, 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. Our website is reformedheritage.org, and if you'd like to join us for worship, Sunday services are at 2 p.m. We meet at the Lone Hill Church on 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions at our website, reformedheritage.org, or again, call 408-866-5607. Thank you for joining us today. We look forward to seeing you next time we get together as we continue our studies in God's Word. Until then, may Christ be your abounding grace. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.